Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. C-13 Originals. There's always been a lot of talk about ways of including people. And even if it's sort of like a joke or a surprise, that's one way that people like to be included is, you know, people like a surprise party. And and especially since the band started in the 80s when music became very canned and synthetic and hinged on MTV videos and... And then leading into the 90s, where the biggest bands had a lot of angst that they were expressing. And often the singer is, you know, some kind of a sex idol object, etc. And we didn't have that going for us. So we, we thought the collective consciousness was a better way to go and more enjoyable. And yeah, this feeling that we're all kind of in this together you know, in terms of not only knowing some of the inside jokes and the language and the context for songs and for antics and rituals, but also just acknowledging that the audience is going to make the show and that the vibe from the audience is going to come to us. And if we're being so open about improvisation, then the only good shows are the ones where we're taking in people's energy and making the show out of that even to the deepest level then, just sort of saying that on some level, yes, we want to go on this incredible journey together. Like we've had these musical experiences at band practice and we're thinking that you might enjoy it too, but let us know, you know, and we'll figure this out together. And it's a beautiful thing too, because we don't have to feel alone. Like we're four people trying to prove ourselves in our music and our songs and the experience is more like we want to go on a journey and these people seem to want to go with us and it sounds idealistic to say but that's what the feeling is when it's good that's mike gordon reflecting on fish's reciprocal relationship with its audience the band has been mindful of this goal going all the way back to its earliest performances and fish's efforts to achieve this objective have informed most every decision large and small throughout the band's 36-year career. In this episode, we're going to examine the many varied means that fishes utilize to foster a special connection with their receptive fan base. As we'll discover, the band members are not only musical pioneers, but they're technological trailblazers as well. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. One of Fish's earliest fortuitous decisions was to enlist Paul Languedoc as their sound man. In 1986, Languedoc, who had majored in philosophy at Bates College, was working as a luthier at Time Guitars in Burlington, where Trey Anastasio occasionally stopped in to chat. Languedoc recalls, Trey would come in and hang out and we got to be friends and then I had a fellow I worked with at the shop who was actually living with Trey in this house. And at 
a certain point, I was like sleeping on their couch for like a week looking for an apartment. And I walked in, the band was practicing, and I stuck my head in and I said hi. And they were like, Trey looked at me and was like, let's get Paul, let's get Paul to do it. And I was like, let's get Paul to do what? And he said, do you want to be our sound man? And um, I was like, sure, I guess. I don't know. I don't think at the time I even may have known what a sound man was, you know. But they were just a college band at the time, so we kind of took it from there. While working at Time Guitars, Languedoc had helped build a short-scale acoustic guitar that Trey purchased and brought with him to Europe when he traveled there in 1985 with John Fishman for a summer of busking. Later, after Time closed, Paul took a job in a cabinet-making shop, moonlighting over a few months to craft a new instrument for Trey that would become his go-to guitar for years. Beyond this, Paul was a true jack-of-all-trades. We carried PA and lighting right from the very beginning, and that was kind of unheard of. And when they hired me, I mean, Mike was kind of in charge of the PA, or he knew the most about PA stuff, and so he's the one who taught me at the beginning there. And I had to learn sort of from the ground up. I didn't really know much about the stuff at the time. But they were always kind of interested in having our own mics and our own PA and our own light show. Paul made a point to carry the spare parts needed to fix any of these on the fly, as well as the stage monitors that he had built for the group to ensure that the band had the best opportunity to hear each other, which was essential to their high-level improvisation. Still, Paul was game for most anything, and on one occasion, he took the stage mid-set following a mishap during the band's animated rave-up, Big Black Furry Creature from Mars. Trey and Mike, they actually smashed their guitars together, <laughs> their fretboards together, you know. And something got caught. Trey pulled the guitar away, and one of the frets on Mike's bass had stuck out at an angle. And I got a hammer, and I walked on stage and hammered it back in place pretty much while they were playing. Paul is quite matter-of-fact about all of this an attitude that also is reflected by a story that appears in an early edition of the Fish newsletter, which recounts a moment from the band's trip to Telluride in 1988. It reads, and I quote, On the way home from that trip, Paul was finally getting some sleep when the truck pulled into a gas station around 3 a.m. It turned out that in replacing a lost gas cap at the last stop, someone had put on a locking cap for which there was no key. So one by one, band and crew members began trying to get the cap off. Within minutes, there were four people gathering around the gas tank with the toolbox open. Tools spread everywhere, hammering, wedging, trying every conceivable way to get the stupid thing off, but to no avail. The cap would not budge. Slowly, the truck door opened, and Paul emerged, half asleep, glasses off, and wandered over to the tank. He picked up the tiniest screwdriver in the toolbox, and gently tapped it into the plastic cap, wedging it against the locking mechanism inside. Without a word, he unscrewed the cap and climbed back into the truck, leaving behind a group of wide-eyed observers. That trip to Telluride during the summer of 1988 was Fish's first foray out of New England. And Paul shares an interesting account of how that came about, even though the band members had their doubts. So the story is, Mike's girlfriend, Scylla, she was in Telluride, 
and that she was talking to somebody about getting the band a gig there. And this guy, Warren Stickney, owned a club there. And he was supposed to book a tour in Colorado for the band. And they finally get back to him. And he's like, well, I didn't book a tour, but you can come play in my club if you want. You know, and this was like the day before we were supposed to go. And he finally got back to Mike and said, well, I don't have a tour, but you can come play here. And maybe I can book one or two other places. And so we had this big meeting, you know, and I had a full-time job at the time. I mean, we had a meeting about whether we or not we should go. And everybody made a little speech about how, no, it doesn't make any sense. I don't think we should go, but yes, I'm voting to go. And so we went. And uh, when we got out there, it turned out that the club was being boycotted because he hadn't been paying his staff. And so nobody would go there. We set up the stuff anyway, and the band played to about, you know, I don't know, eight or ten people every night for three nights in a row or something. And uh, people would just come and they wouldn't buy anything at the bar because they didn't want to support the owner. So then there was this other club across the way, literally across the street, called the Fly Me to the Moon Saloon. So then the, somebody asked if they could play over there, and so we moved the gear over literally across the street. And then when Fish played there, the place was absolutely packed. Fish wouldn't return to Colorado for a couple of years. But Paige McConnell explains the Telluride shows had an impact due to the live recordings that circulated from those dates. At that time, the way you got new music, at least in terms of Fish, was someone would trade a tape with you or give you a cassette tape. And that's how music got around. And when we played in Colorado in 1988, and we played four shows in Telluride and or maybe five and one in Aspen, those tapes started to circulate. And so when we went back, we already had a little bit of a name that people knew from that. Kevin Shapiro, who is now the band's archivist, taped his very first fish show at the Agora Ballroom in Cleveland on September 29, 1991, after hearing the tapes his friends had recorded five months earlier at Rick's Cafe in Ann Arbor. He soon became a true believer, driving 15 hours to his next show, which turned out to be New Year's Eve in Worcester, Mass. Over the next few years, Shapiro, who was a Michigan State undergrad and then a law student, taped a fair number of gigs. He recalls that the band members took an interest in his efforts. It wasn't unusual. Trey and Mike particularly would pop out and say, hey, are you recording? Oh, cool, those look like nice mics. How are your tapes? And they were really interested in it. They would ask, how'd last night turn out? How'd the night before turn out? How'd Virginia turn out? There were small rooms. It was easy for them to walk around and see who was out there and meet people. And they were always interested in the recording. The band had come to appreciate the role that tapers could play to help spread the word. And in March 1992, put this to the test. The Secret Language was kind of an experiment with that feedback loop where they knew if they did certain things on one night, March 6th and 7th in Portsmouth, that by the time they arrived at the Campus Club in Providence or, you know, California, that the fans already knew the secret language, and that can only happen through the taping. And they would actively use that fact and kind of experiment with it. And they, like we, were amazed that that would happen, that people, you'd go across the country and people would know 
the inside jokes from two weeks or two months before on the other side of the U.S. We'll talk more about the secret language in a later episode. But here's Trey explaining it in Providence at the Campus Club on March 13, 1992, before ultimately encouraging fans to share it on tape. But this is a very interesting sociological experiment to uh, find out how quickly word can spread. Anyway, what I explained at the Portsmouth shows... <laughs> okay, I'll explain it very quickly here. What I explained at the Portsmouth shows is that we have a little secret language here. And um, what it is is, if I go like this any time during the night on my guitar, or if Paige goes like this, or if Mike goes like this, and as I said in Portsmouth, we don't let Fish talk because he talks enough in real life. So it's basically a little musical language going on here. If I go like that, it means I'm going to talk. And then, or if any of us do that, this means I'm going to talk. And if I do a certain signal, it means... So this is basically just to draw your attention to the fact that something is about to be said. Now, one thing that might be said is this. Ooh! Right, that's what you do. So it's supposed to be, you know, the Simpsons thing there, Homer Simpson. If I do that... Now, the whole idea here is... If you get most of the people that usually come see fish or come see fish a lot are going to get in on this language, it's kind of a secret thing. Hang on, I'm explain it. And the whole concept here is that someday we go into we pull into some town, Providence or something, and some guy comes off the street who's never seen fish before and walks in, and he's standing there watching this concert, and suddenly in the middle of some big jam, hundreds of people all go at the simultaneously. Or the other thing that could happen, and this is what we were doing in Portsmouth, is if I go like this, and then I go, everybody's supposed to suddenly fall down onto the ground like they, like they died simultaneously. So that will leave the people who don't know what's going on standing up with all these people around them. So the other things that can happen are, just quickly, what do we have? There's five of them, right? There's this one. Which is, to, uh, uh, that's a, uh, to everything, turn, turn, turn. And what that's supposed to tell you to do is to turn around and look at Paul and cheer at Paul as if he's the band right there. <laughs> and scream Roots at the top of your lungs. Roots. Root Doc. Um, so that's three of them. And the other one is this one. At which point you simultaneously sing a random note. Is that right? Okay, that's it. Four of them. Can everybody remember that? So you should tell your friends this stuff or put it on a tape or something so that I don't have to keep explaining it. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hey, friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author, 
who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker, a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. For a few years, Paul Languedoc provided tapers with access to his soundboard. But this came to an end in 1991. Not because the band had outlawed it, but because some of the more aggressive tapers were inhibiting his ability to do his job. I only had one set of outputs on the soundboard, and it was just a dinky little soundboard. And then so people had to chain off each other. People were bringing in tape decks that they plug into the wall, you know, with cassette tapes. It was pre-DAT and everything. But, you know, people would start to get into fights with each other. and Or now and then somebody would try to patch in to the signal chain and unplug something in my soundboard and then plug, you know, some adapter in there, which I couldn't have. I couldn't have people doing that. And, you know, the band was definitely not against putting soundboard tapes out there, but it was unworkable, basically. I definitely did like walk away in between sets, you know, and then come back and find somebody had plugged in something into the signal chain. So I was not too happy about that kind of thing. Meanwhile, Chris Kuroda, who has been running Fish's Lights since 1989, recalls that a few people couldn't distinguish between the soundboard and his own lighting board. Back then, when we were still allowing people to plug in, some guy came up to me before the show and went, he had his tape deck, and he went, hey, can I plug into your board tonight? Can I plug in? And there was an XLR plug in the back of my lighting console that didn't have a use for the way I had things cabled. So I went, yeah, sure, dude, go ahead. Plug on in. <laughs> and it, that lasted for about half of the first song. And I'm sure what he was hearing on his tape was probably something like, boop, beep, boop. <laughs> Although Paul was no longer providing patches, he was recording the shows, and the band would occasionally circulate his soundboard tapes. You've got, even by 1994, Paul's two-track tapes, which still got made fairly regularly because the band would use them to reference and listen to, and uh, they would often, if they liked a show, put it out in the public. And that happened regularly, so a great show, and they would walk away... Uh, a Roxy 93 or, a, you know, so many great shows, an Amy's Farm, whatever. If the band liked the show, liked the tape, they would put it out and distribute it. And they realized that was the word of mouth. And, you know, they would distribute that. Eventually, with the internet, that coalesced into tape trees. Basically, right, blanks and postage. I'll make you a recording if you send me blanks and postage. So they would give the tape to somebody, often Shelley. While these days it's incredibly easy for someone to discover fish through an online platform, Shelley Culbertson is one of the rare individuals who did just this nearly 30 years ago. 
I was introduced to fish by the internet. I began using the internet as a graduate student at Berkeley in the 80s and continued when I finished school. So by 1990, I was using the internet on a regular, on a daily basis, even though um, I don't think most folks were at that time particularly Usenet news groups. And I was a Grateful Dead fan, so there was a news group about the Grateful Dead, and some people in it started talking about fish, and I was interested. And I went to see them for the first time in April of 1991 at the International Beer Garden, and the capacity was 400 people. I had already listened to tapes um, because tape trading was common among Grateful Dead fans, so it was normal for people to be sharing fish tapes, and fish, of course, encouraged taping, which was wonderful, and helped the music spread organically. One of the places where Shelley connected with fellow fans was the Usenet newsgroup rec.music.fish, which was often referred to by the acronym RMP. A Usenet newsgroup was an early version of a message board, with new groups only created through direct appeal to an administrative body, followed by a community vote. David Steinberg, a board member of the Mockingbird Foundation, a fan-run charitable organization that supports music education for children, who we met in episode two, remembers. At the time, there were three bands that were considered worthy to be a rec band. Rec Music Grateful Dead, Rec Music Bob Dylan, and Rec Music Beatles. The fourth band is Rec Music Fish. And it was a vicious fight because they were strong gatekeepers. They were like, no, you got to prove to us that this actually is worthy of being a Rec News group. And somehow they managed to say, no, this is worthy. And it became literally the fourth band to get a real news group. And it became one of the more popular news groups. They proved it. We proved it. There was a lot of general surprise when the fans of Fish successfully met the criteria to create a new news group, given the low profile of the band at that time in comparison with the other bands that had dedicated news groups, as opposed to having to kind of carry on side conversations in news groups that were more general. It all kind of fits together, you know, the way that Fish's audience grew organically and different things that the audience shared as a group and shared with the band. And really none of it was calculated, even though these days with the experience that we all have now with social media and grassroots campaigning and you know, flash events and things like that. It's a lot of things that would now be deliberately included in a media strategy, but that was really never the case. With Fish's encouragement, Shelley would occasionally share tapes with the community by seeding tape trees, in which an administrator, aka the root, would make copies for branches, who would then make copies for other branches who would eventually make copies for Leaves, who would make no copies. Ben Hunter, 
who co-managed the group with John Paluska in the late 80s, comments. That was kind of the logical progression of tape trading in a certain way, I think. Prior to that, people were passing around the tapes. And I mean, in the early days when I was trying to get tapes, those were like gold. I would covet those things and I would play them for people, but I wouldn't let anybody else touch that. That was the thing that I was the most into. So the use of the internet to spread the word, I think it was just the next logical progression in that cycle. And obviously extremely pivotal in their success and their continuing to grow their following. And obviously that presaged everything that's going on today with the internet and everything is available with a click of a button now. But that was not a foregone conclusion 30 years ago at all. And again, that's hard for people who are younger to recognize that, you know, how important that was. When you went to see a band, you might not get a chance to see them or hear their music again for a year or years, you know? And at that point, Fish was a phenomenon that was largely underground and both the tape trading and later the internet, those were the absolute most important ways for the word to get out there. It just kind of was what felt right and helped to break down the barriers between the band and the audience to create a collective sense of involvement, which I think is kind of at the core of how the foundation of the audience was built. Obviously, the audience was also built because they're a phenomenal band and they're amazing musicians and, you know, people enjoy the music because it's wonderful music. But at the same time, there were a lot of forces that really supported the sense of belonging in the community. And it's kind of wonderful how long that has persisted as well. Shelley soon became an administrator on a new listserv, along with Matt Lawrence, who we met in episode one. Although this was not an official fish-run enterprise, the November-December 1991 issue of the Fish Update proudly proclaimed, Hey, college students! Get on the fishnet! What is the fishnet? The fishnet is a nationwide computer message base devoted to discussing the band. Topics of discussion include set lists and comments from recent shows, questions and answers about song titles, lyrics and chords, reports of wild events, like Trey rollerblading through the crowd, and lots more. There are also announcements of tape trees, an easy way to acquire live fish tapes. Who's on it? Right now, about 100 people. Most are college students. Some are people that have computer access at their place of work. It has only been in existence for about three months. New people are joining all the time. Matt Lawrence reflects on the impact of the fishnet. It was prescient. You know, they realized the power of this potential channel of communication with their fans and this really more direct channel of communication than a newsletter or or anything like that. So it became a really interesting virtuous cycle because we put out this list They discovered that they had this channel of their fans. They publicized it. That brought more people to the list, which also brought more people to the band. And it was really, it was definitely a mutually beneficial thing. In the fall of 1993, Mike Gordon renamed the Fish Update the Doniak Schweiss, 
which he would later claim in his response to a fan letter, and I quote, is the feeling you get when you're fidgeting with your keys to get in your house and the phone rings and then stops ringing. I love doing it. Well, now it's on the computer, but, you know, otherwise with a piece of paper, I just spew. It's just stream of consciousness. But one idea will kind of lead to another. And they would say, okay, we need to name something, a festival or whatever. And I would sit there. There was actually one time where I actually had an office and I was just doing my own work in the fish office. But they kept coming into my room with things to name. So I put up a plaque on the door, you know, Mike Gordon, namer of things. I didn't always get my name in there, but I love to do this brainstorming. By this time, Shelley was working out of the fish office as manager John Paluska's first full-time employee, although she would continue to maintain steady presence on the fishnet, answering questions and providing general information, even after she took over the band's in-house ticketing initiative. Meanwhile, even though the Schweiss was a printed newsletter, it provided a back-and-forth communication with fans somewhat akin to a social media platform of the present. I loved doing the Doniak Schweiss. There were several of us involved, but early on, I was one of the big kind of laying things out person um, and piecing it together. I like a magazine because it's a place where so many different things come together. I just like how much information can dance in front of you in a good magazine. So it was a promotional tool because we could put our calendar dates out and some merchandise. But I really liked doing the Mike's Corner and fighting against Fish's Forum back and forth and answering letters that would go in the Doniak Schweiss. You know, and I used to answer every femme letter that came in. And when I wanted to stop, the band said no. And I said, well, can I just do the ones that have a question? And they were like, nope, just answer every one. And even if someone said, uh, you guys are sounding great, I would send them a thank you letter. And, you know, Trey did Fish Profiles. And there's just a lot of funny stories around this. You know, like everyone wanting to know the words to you enjoy myself and every issue I would answer 10 different ways. But I guess the point is we had a lot of fun with it. It's a different medium and a way to reach the fans. And we're not the first band to have that kind of communication with their fans back and forth, but we certainly enjoyed making it our own. Fish emphatically made it their own. In the February 1993 newsletter, Mike's latest answer to the question regarding the lyrics to You Enjoy Myself was, water your team in a beehive, I'ma sent you. Then, when Fish opened their latest tour in Portland, Maine at the Portland Expo, rather than Washa Ufisi drive me to Firenze, they sang... Now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. 
Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Since live music is at the heart of the Fish experience, over the course of the 1990s, the band continued to develop strategies beyond the seating of tape trees to utilize the internet in order to share live performances. Beyond the band and their compositions and their work ethic and their dedication and unbelievable, unlikely level of improvisational skills, the synergy with the audience is really the crux of the biscuit of the fish experience. I mean, that's the most unique thing that's going on. And I think probably the largest contributor, whether it be through taping, through internet, through word of mouth, through any number of other fan methods, but all those things are of the same ilk and they're about the synergy between the band and the audience. And it mirrors the synergy that we, you know, so crave at the live shows and that we eat up when it happens. And when it's best, it's otherworldly. Their initial efforts were innovative, if largely overlooked. The first took place through a relationship with the digital retailer eMusic. Kevin Shapiro looks back. As far as I recall, we started with the white tape in 1998. I think that was the first thing on eMusic. And then right around October 99, right around Halloween, if not on Halloween, we put out the Halloween 1990 show from Colorado College over eMusic. And I think that that was the first full concert transmitted over the internet in a commercial way. It was a first, it was a breakthrough. Two months later, Fish became the first band to offer downloadable songs recorded live in concert that very same day. Jason Colton first saw Fish as a Massachusetts high school senior in 1990. Following a chance meeting with John Paluska, after calling the band's office to purchase a t-shirt before leaving for college, Jason developed a working relationship with Fish's manager. When he returned from Stanford in the summer of 1994, he joined the burgeoning home team. Jason remembers the scramble at Big Cypress as a harbinger for what was to come. Somebody had approached us, some tech company that had built some kind of DRM, some digital wrapper that prevented piracy or something, and had approached us about doing this for free and, and hosting it on our website. And I think we just thought it was a little gimmicky, but just interesting enough to give it a go. And what we did was, after each set, I think there were five sets at Big Cypress, we uploaded six songs, the big... New Year's Eve set had two MP3s or two whatever the file type was that was uploaded. And so we're down at Big Cypress, 
and it's New Year's 1999, and there's 75, 80,000 people on site, and we're in the thick of it. It is really as engaging and chaotic an event from just trying to keep track of everything that's going on. And we had committed to this digital initiative where we had to drive somebody from our office, had to drive like 30 minutes to a place that had fast enough bandwidth for us to upload these tracks. You know, we told fans they'd be available within two hours after the show. I don't know if we made that timing or not, but that was our first foray into offering live fish. However, the vision, the business model, and the bandwidth to launch Live Fish as a proper ongoing concern was still three years away. That story begins with MTV VJ Adam Curry and Cornell undergrad Brad Serling. My best friend in college grew up in the town of Woodstock, lived across the hall from me freshman year, and he would always come and borrow my dead tapes. And he was looking for information on Woodstock 94. And we would go into the computer center in the Cornell Business School because it had the best connection aside from the computer science building. And we clicked on MTV.com, saw information about Woodstock 94, and it happened to be the day that Adam Curry quit MTV. He quit on the air and posted this thing on MTV.com, which he had owned, the domain name, which actually ended up being the first lawsuit over a domain name, Viacom claimed that they had no idea he registered MTV.com. So they settled out of court, and the money from that settlement over MTV.com is what funded OnRamp, which was the first company that I worked at. And the first project was actually Woodstock. So I started like the week before Woodstock 94. I wasn't able to go to the show, but I was building Woodstock.com. And one of the first things I remember doing was posting this little AU clip of Jimi Hendrix playing the Star-Spangled Banner at the original Woodstock. That's what would load when you first went to Woodstock.com in August of 94. Then we did Grammy.com in 95, and that was really what sparked my interest. The Grammys were a client, and we went out to the shrine in L.A. in February of 95, and we had built the site Grammy.com, and we sat on the side of the stage at the shrine, and when the artists would come off after winning their award, we would sit them down and chat with them in a chat room. And we were broadcasting it. We had this little CUC me camera, which was a black and white, about 10 frames a second, a postage stamp size video. And we had this little camera set up. So like David Crosby walks off stage and sits down in front of the camera and we're you know chatting. He sees that I had a little steal your face Grateful Dead sticker on my IBM ThinkPad. He's like, uh-oh, you're a deadhead. We started talking about Jerry. And Jerry was still alive at that point. It was actually the year that he died, but he had just recovered from some car accident or something. I was like, yeah, it's amazing Jerry's still alive. And Crosby got really upset. He's like, what do you mean it's amazing Jerry's still alive? It's amazing I'm still alive. You know, I've been in jail. I kicked addiction. You know, it, was, it was a very funny rock and roll moment. But I knew that that right there, that moment was exactly what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. While he enjoyed his new job, Serling, who was an active taper of live shows, came to realize that his workload limited his ability to trade tapes with his friends. However, he recognized that his new employer had plenty of available bandwidth, and he received permission from Curry to host recordings. Brad also received consent from bands such as The Grateful Dead and Fish to place the audio files on the server for non-commercial use. Then, in 1997, he decided to move the files to his own site. And I was flying back from The Great Wind. I'm looking out the window and just like popped in my head, nugs.net. That's exactly what it is. It's a network of nuggets. You know, it's a play on words that a nugget that you would find in an archive 
and a network and you put the nugget on the network and it's nugs.net. So and it was a nice catchy name and I, I didn't even think at the time how valuable it would be as a short URL. And I certainly wasn't thinking about the legalization of canonization where we are now where this name is actually really valuable. But that's not what I was thinking at the time. I just thought it was a cool play on words of like nuggets and a network of nuggets. So I had this flash of what the URL should be. And when I got back to the office that Monday after the great win, I had our sysadmin register it and boom, it was available. And there you go. Then I launched Nux.net. Following their experience sharing audio from Big Cypress, Fish decided to move from posting individual tracks to offering entire live shows. John Paluska, who managed the band from 1989 through their second hiatus in 2004, noticed what Brad had been able to accomplish with Nugs.net and recognized that Serling might be able to help. So we reached out to him, so how are you doing this? And Paul Languedoc at the time had become better and better at creating these live mixes with audience mixed in for atmosphere and everything. He was making these incredible live recordings of every show. So then it was just about figuring out how to do it, frankly. One immediate complication is that just as the idea started to coalesce in the fall of 2000, Fish was about to go on hiatus. Still, John and Jason discussed potential future plans with Brad when the band traveled to Northern California for a performance at Shoreline Amphitheater on October 7th, which later became known to fans as Fish's first last show. But Brad remained in touch, and two years later, the proper moment arrived. When we knew the band was coming back in December of 2002, we were able to really kind of like plan out this Live Fish Downloads program. We had a meeting, a band meeting. It was a critical decision on the band's part to offer every show. I think there was a realization that having to determine right after a show whether a show was worthy was not something that they wanted to do. So it was, you know, a little bit of a leap of faith to be like, let's put out every show. Fish was signed to Elektra at the time. So Brad came to New York City in November 2001, conveniently overlapping with Trey's Oysterhead tour, for a meeting with Fish management and representatives from Elektra and parent label Warner Brothers, which was then part of AOL Time Warner. I made a presentation of what I thought Live Fish should be. It was basically an overview of what Nugsnet was. I presented that to them and how it worked and showed them how Fish was a big part of it and what the downloads were like and what the traffic was like. And I said, this is how I see it working on a commercial basis. So I got through the presentation and at the end, they didn't say yes or no about giving their approval to do this for Fish. They said, can you build us a Nugsnet for Metallica? Which, you know, that always stuck in my head. Like it was the funniest response. I looked around the room, like, you know, it kind of went silent and what were they going to say? Were they going to let me do this for fish or was it going to have to be an AOL thing? Could fish do it in a fish way or would it have to be this corporate way? And they didn't say, yes or no, they just said, can you do it for Metallica? So it almost happened that I launched Nugsnet as a business with Metallica because that almost happened first. It just unbeknownst to me at the time, James was in rehab and you know nobody knew what was happening with Metallica and it took a couple of years before he got that going with Metallica. Once I saw that movie, Some Kind of Monster, then I realized, oh, that's what was happening during that whole time when Metallica went radio silent. So in the meantime, we launched Live Fish because Fish came back, you know, New Year's 2002 and we got the green light from Electra and we, we were off to the races. The two biggest concerns raised by the label were DRM and sound quality. The use of DRM, digital rights management, would have placed a limitation on the devices capable of playing the files. 
This was a hot-button issue during the Napster era, but the band wanted the music to be unencumbered, and the label relented. Fish also wanted to offer true CD-quality sound files, not solely MP3s, and successfully fought for that as well. These elements were in place as Live Fish prepared to debut with the band's return to the stage at Madison Square Garden on December 31st, 2002. Fish would become the first band to launch this sort of downloads project. What's more, the iTunes Music Store would not appear until April 28, 2003. And unlike the songs on Live Fish, all the available tracks came encoded with DRM encryption. In many respects, Live Fish embodied the band's ethos of independence and innovation while maintaining that special connection with its fan base. It also built on the group's longtime respect for its tapers, who were still allowed to record the band. To frame the totality of the experience in the context of a fan, we'll leave the final word to Basketball Hall of Famer Bill Walton. I love Fish. Are you kidding? Trey, Mike, John, Paige, these guys, their level of creativity, their level of respect, their level of giving joy to other people. Is there any greater purpose in life? When you think of the great human values, you know, passion, enthusiasm, industriousness, friendship, loyalty, cooperation, poise, confidence, competitive greatness, faith, patience, all these things that go into making a life. That's what fish brings you all the time. And the way they come in, the way they are able to come with a sense of purpose, a message to deliver, a message of hope, a message of we're in this together and we can do this. So let's get it going. And they look at each other and the show is underway. Long may they run. Next time on Long May They Run. As Live Fish launches, the band achieves some additional milestones, including a bold step into the world of 4K. And we'll talk basketball as well, as we discuss how fish is a true contact sport. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals, executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Perry Crowell. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. And production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney. Press by Hilary Schuff. And marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis. And performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season.
It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology, and Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.